Well, we are studying the topic of conscience this morning quickly, in case some of you aren't in the room yet. There are some resources out on the table. An article I wrote on conscience, you can pick up a few of these little books called Conscience. You can pick up First Come, First Serve. And I forgot to mention this book also for children. I've read this to my boys at least a dozen times. It's called That Little Voice in Your Head, Learning About Your Conscience. Parents, pick this up for your kids. They may not be old enough to, to read it yet. Uh, grandparents, pick this up to read with your grandkids and, and read it with them. We need to teach our kids what their conscience is and how, how to use it. Um, the, the main idea is that there's a difference between family rules and Bible rules. There's a difference between family rules and Bible rules. That's the, the thesis um, of this little book. It's in our library. I'd encourage you to pick up a copy for your own family, though as you're able. Let me begin with a bit of a thought experiment as we get into this topic of conscience. So imagine this scenario with me. Imagine you were brought up in a home where watching R-rated movies was not allowed. Watching R-rated movies was not allowed. But as you grow and you become a young adult, you have friends and one of these friends invites you one weekend to go see an R-rated film. You didn't want to seem weird to that friend, and yet you, you really didn't think you should go, and you didn't know how to tell them why you didn't think you should go. And when you did tell them that you couldn't go, and you told them why, they seemed upset, and they seemed a bit put off by your reasoning. They even jabbed you a little bit. They joked that you must think you're too good to see an R-rated movie, or some goody-two-shoes, or maybe even accused you of being legalistic. So you finally relented, gave in, went and saw the movie with your friend. The movie was relatively okay. It didn't have any strong sexual content or really bad language. It just had a lot of intense action scenes. But the whole time, as you watched the movie, you just felt uncomfortable. You felt like you shouldn't be there. You felt that you'd made a mistake, and you really didn't like the way your friend had made fun of you for expressing some concern about going to this movie. So after the movie ended, you vowed to never go see an R-rated film again, and you told your friend politely to please not invite you if they were going to see an R-rated film. You thought to yourself, how could they, how could my friend who seems to be a godly person, how could they so casually go and watch R-rated movies? And all the while, they, your friend, was wondering why you were so self-righteous and judgmental and not with the times. And unfortunately, you didn't hang out with that friend very much after this because it created an awkwardness within the friendship that just seemed too big to get over. You were grieved that something like this, something so trivial, could break apart your friendship. And yet you were also convinced that you had made the right decision to not go back to an R-rated movie again. So what's going on in this scenario? What's happening between these friends? Maybe you've had a similar scenario. Maybe it has nothing to do with R-rated movies, but some other topic. What's happening in this? Well, it's a clash of consciences. Two consciences who have two different ideas of of what is right and wrong about R-rated movies have clashed and unfortunately 
led to division in this case. One friend's conscience had no problem seeing R-rated movies. The other friend's conscience just wouldn't allow it. And then this clash of conscience wasn't handled in a very loving way, and it ended up in disunity and division. If you hear one thing this morning, please hear this. Dividing over disputable matters is not the way of Christ. Can I say it again? Dividing over disputable matters is not the way of Christ. Dividing over disputable matters is not the way of Christ. And yet all of us are guilty to one degree or another of majoring on minors, of elevating things that we shouldn't elevate, being too dogmatic about our own personal convictions. Even respected Christians express their opinions on various things in ways they likely regret. Listen to something Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, in my opinion, one of the greatest preachers in the last hundred years. Listen to something Lloyd-Jones said when he was only 24 years old. He says, quote, I cannot understand a man who wears silk stockings (laughs) or even gaudily colored socks. That's some of you in the room, by the way. Okay. Hope Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't see you. I can't understand a man who does this or wears rings and wristwatches and spats. I don't even know what a spat is, by the way. Thank you, Rose. <laughs> who wears shoes instead of boots or who carries a cane in his, in his hand. He goes on to say, The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day, or the one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. Then he says, when I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, meaning a radio, I know at once that there is something wrong. Your five-valve sets, that's a kind of radio, may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. End quote. That's Lloyd-Jones at age 24. I suspect that an older, wiser Lloyd-Jones regretted saying things like that. But we've all done it. We've all held personal convictions in a way that was unloving and uncharitable and even divisive within our families and our churches. Of course, God cares about everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it is His. And so He cares about how we deal with everything. That doesn't mean that everything is equally important. There are many things that the Bible doesn't address specifically that we have to make decisions about every single day. Things that God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled, biblically-minded Christians disagree on. Let me give you some examples a bunch of examples. And I can't wait to... I wish I could feel what you're feeling as I read these. Because you're all going to disagree on all of this stuff. And then some of you are going to be like, well, why is that even on the list? And you missed this one. <laughs> Take that discussion into your community groups. So things like watching R-rated movies. Celebrating Halloween. Drinking alcohol in moderation. 
ladies wearing pants or makeup, listening to secular music, drinking fair trade coffee. I know you coffee snobs are out there. (laughs) Eating organic only, body piercings, doing Santa Claus at Christmas, playing video games, Harry Potter. Getting vaccines, wearing face masks, using homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics. When should married couples start having children? How many children should married couples have? Using birth control or family planning, doing homeschool, private school, or public school, eating meat, smoking cigars, listening to Christian hip hop, eating fast food, global warming, immigration policy, the size of government, using instruments in worship, singing only psalms in congregational worship, getting tattoos, honoring Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, using the King James Version of the Bible, wearing head coverings in worship, Wives working outside the home, watching Disney movies, singing hymns versus singing praise songs, applying your pro-life convictions into the world, dating versus courtship, and perhaps most divisive last year, which presidential candidate to vote for? On and on and on I could go. You all have an opinion about those things. Some of them you might have not even thought about, but you will eventually. You'll think about these things, and you'll have to have a position on these things. And some of you are like, well, John, that is not a disputable matter. The Bible says. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it turns out the Bible doesn't say on these matters. More on that later. The Bible does not give us specific answers to these questions and a host of others. Why? Because God never intended this to be your answer book. God intended the Bible to reveal God and to help you look more like Jesus, His Son. That's the point of the Bible. Not to answer all of your particular questions about all of these particular issues. God never intended His Bible, His Word, to be an encyclopedia of answers to every question we have. But the good news is that He also hasn't left us without help as we think through the myriad of things the Bible doesn't specifically address. He has given us His Word. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the church. And He's also given us a conscience. He's given us a conscience. Perhaps the most neglected thing, perhaps the most neglected blessing from God in your life. Your conscience. These disputable matters that fill our lives are decided according to the leading of one's conscience. This means that understanding the conscience, what it is and how it works, is one of the most important ways to preserve and promote unity in the church. So let's start into this topic of conscience with a definition. What is the conscience? What is your conscience? Here's how I define it. Conscience is 
your self-awareness about what you believe is right and what you believe is wrong. Your self-awareness about what you believe is right or wrong. Your self-awareness about what you believe is right or wrong. Our conscience is our moral check engine light. Our inner sense of what we should or should not do. Our inner sense of guilt when we do what we should not do. And approval when we do what we should do. And everyone has one. Romans 2, 14 and 15 makes this clear. Believers and unbelievers have a conscience. Romans 2, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So our conscience functions as a guide and a judge. It it has a forward-looking and a backward-looking function. It warns us before we do something wrong and urges us to do what's right. And then it accuses us or condemns us when we do what is wrong and excuses us when we do what's right. It accuses and excuses. And this is a beautiful gift from God, primarily because just as pain in our physical bodies alerts us to a physical problem, so pain or pangs or guilt in our conscience alerts us to a spiritual problem that we all have. In other words, without our conscience, we, we wouldn't see our need for righteousness and to be made right before a holy God. We understand intuitively, according to Romans 1, that God is holy and that He's made everything and that we have, the text says, not given Him thanks, failed to honor Him as God, and have sinned. Our conscience then rightly condemns us. Now, a person outside of Christ lives with that guilty conscience every single day. They're still in their sin Thus, they're still outside of the righteousness of God. This is why people who aren't Christians feel deep and abiding guilt and shame and unrest and are afraid to die because they know that something is not right. They don't always know what to do about it. Their conscience hasn't cleared them, hasn't been cleared because their guilt hasn't been removed. Now, of course, the good news of the gospel is that everyone... Friends, please hear this. Everyone who turns away from their sin and turns to Jesus Christ will be given a clean or cleared conscience. This is how Hebrews says it. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So friend, if you're living under a guilty conscience that's like a bag of heavy rocks you just carry around everywhere you go and you can't understand why you keep feeling the way you feel about the guilt in your life and all the things you've done 50 years ago and 50 days ago and this morning, if you can't understand why you can't seem to shake that abiding guilt, it's likely that your conscience hasn't been purified or cleaned or cleared by the blood of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that when you turn to Christ, Christ will turn to you and forgive you of your sin and cover your sin with His righteousness. He'll never count that sin against you because it's already been counted against Him on the cross. 
so you can live with a clean conscience. Now, a saved person, someone who's in Christ, has a cleansed conscience and has the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in their life and help them fight that sin. The Spirit opens our eyes to sins we didn't even know were sins before we were Christians. I know many of you have had this experience where you become a Christian and you realize, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing all this stuff after all. Or you start seeing things in your life like pride and greed and lust and wanting things that are other other people's. You start understanding, oh, there are all these things in my life that don't belong, and I need to get rid of this stuff. That's your conscience made alive and functioning appropriately. As you read the Bible, the Spirit starts to rebuild your conscience. It helps you to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Perhaps one of those practical things you could take from here this morning is a new prayer to add into your prayer life. God, help me to love the things that you love. And help me to to hate the things that you hate. And watch how your conscience begins to change. Now, of course, as Christians, we inevitably sin, daily sin, repeatedly sin, sometimes tragically sin. The good news of the gospel is for us, too. The good news of the gospel is that we have a clean conscience and can have a cleansed conscience. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God, not Christian, God not only promises to forgive you, but also cleanse you. To cleanse you, to clean you. We just sang these hymns, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you remember the next line? What can make me whole again? So there's a repetition in the songwriter's mind. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or the other hymn we sang, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So, Jesus' blood, friends, can cleanse you and keep on cleansing you. It's the kind of bath you want to keep taking. And stop pretending you don't need the bath. You do. You have pride. You have greed. You constantly want what isn't yours. You have selfishness. I have it. We need this precious fountain to wash us and wash us and keep washing us, and keep washing us, and cleaning and cleansing our conscience. So these are some things we do if our conscience rightly condemns us. But what if our conscience wrongly condemns us? What do we do if our conscience wrongly condemns us? You see, our consciences aren't infallible. They can be wrong. Our consciences aren't the voice of God in our heads. Some people confuse the voice of God with the voice of their conscience. Of course, God made our conscience. He uses our conscience, but it's not the same. He, His voice, is not the same as our conscience's voice. Our consciences don't necessarily tell us what God would say. One quick example would illustrate this point. Some people with a, with a clean conscience can 
take what isn't theirs. Some people with a clean conscience can kill babies in their mother's womb. Their conscience is wrong, isn't it? The voice they're following is not telling them the truth about those decisions. So our consciences are not infallible. Only the Word of God is infallible. So how do we align our consciences with God's voice? Now, before we get into the specifics on that, let me answer, or excuse me, uh, say one other thing that will help us think about this question. We need to understand two categories of Christians that Paul discusses in Romans 14. Go ahead and find Romans 14. We're going to get into that text in just a few minutes. But quickly, find Romans 14. That's page 892 in your pew Bible. Romans 14 is the text in 1 Corinthians 8, really 8, 9, and 10, are the text on conscience in the New Testament. In these texts, Paul discusses two categories of Christians. And he uses these words, weak and strong. Weak and strong. Let me read just a few verses. Romans 14, 1 and 2, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And skip down to chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, 9-11, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, or if anyone sees that you, have, that you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by doing, excuse me, so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, Then one other text, chapter 9, verse 22. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. So Paul has in mind two categories of Christian. The weak in faith, the strong in faith. The weak Christian, the strong Christian. The weak conscience and the strong conscience. What is he talking about? I think Pastor John MacArthur gives a good explanation here. He explains a weak conscience like this. MacArthur says a weak conscience usually is hypersensitive and overactive about issues that are not sins. Scripture calls this a weak conscience because it is too easily wounded. It's too easily wounded. People with weak consciences tend to fret about things that should provoke no guilt in a mature Christian who knows God's truth. End quote. So a weak Christian... A weak conscience is too easily wounded by things that aren't sin. Now, a strong conscience is theologically informed, understanding what things God has forbidden and what things God has commanded, and is able to live in that freedom, knowing what they must do and what they must not do, and understanding that everything else is a matter of freedom. Paul would call this a strong conscience as opposed to a weak conscience. Much more could be said on this, but for the sake of time, let's keep going. How do we move from having a weak conscience to a strong one? You might start asking yourself, by the way, where am I? And it's not helpful to think that you are one or the other, by the way. That you're, like you're just a weak conscience or you're just a strong. That's not really how it works. Because you might have a weak conscience on one matter and a strong conscience on another matter. 
So a better question for you to start thinking through is, what areas is your conscience weak in? What areas is your conscience strong in? But how do we move from a weak conscience to a strong one? Well, the simplest answer is that we educate our conscience with truth. We educate our conscience with truth, especially the truth as revealed in God's Word, the Bible. Again, MacArthur is helpful here. He says, A regular diet of Scripture will strengthen a weak conscience or restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. End quote. So something is going to shape your conscience. All of you have a conscience, and it's being shaped. Something's shaping it. Seeking truth, especially the truth of the Bible, is the way to shape it after the thoughts of God. If you want the voice of your conscience to best match the voice of God, you need to hear and listen to the voice of God in the Bible. But there's truth outside the Bible that can help too. What do I mean? So there's truth inside the Bible, then there's truth outside the Bible. Well, for example, you may think that a certain kind of birth control is okay, but then you learn that, oh, that birth control actually induces an abortion. I didn't know that. That's not good. That's, that's wrong. I should stop that. So there's a truth that came to you from outside of the Bible to help you. You may, another example or two, you may think that wasting inordinate amounts of time on things like sports or video games is okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is. You need someone to come in and and say, hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a few weeks. (laughs) What's going on? You need some truth coming in from the outside to help you. Another example, not often discussed, among Christians, unfortunately, many uh, Christians assume that in vitro fertilization or IVF is okay and, 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 and do it uncritically. And so they need to learn that extra embryos are often discarded or just stored perpetually. And that shouldn't be okay for the Christian conscience. So there's truth that comes in from outside to help us as we think through these matters. We form convictions about what's right and wrong from the Bible, from truth inside the Bible, and we also take into consideration truth that comes from outside of the Bible, so that truth inside and outside the Bible is what shapes our conscience. This education of our conscience is not a class we take. It's not a one-time event. It's not going to happen in this sermon. I hope this is something that starts happening over the course of your life. It's a lifelong process. It shouldn't be pursued in a vacuum. God has put you into a community of accountable relationships, such as your family and your church family, so that you'll better be able to discern the differences between right and wrong. Just another example here. Just because you think watching movies with nudity in them is right doesn't mean that it is right. You might need to have a conversation with a friend about that. Parents, we inherit all kinds of rules from our families of origin, and we often uncritically just use them on our kids. <laughs> right? This is what mom did. Must be right. <laughs> parents, let me encourage you to talk with other parents and try to discern the difference between family rules and Bible rules and how to apply the Bible's rules into our families. Our consciences are are our own, but we need help 
calibrating them. We need help aligning them to the voice of God, to the truth of God. And the way we do this is by listening to God's voice in Scripture, then thinking through the application of that in, in the context of other believers. Scripture is where we find out what our freedoms and our obligations are as Christians. The church is where we get help in working out the details. And this is so massively important. It, it's not enough, friends, to just read the Bible. Obviously, read the Bible. Know it backwards and forwards. But if you read the Bible on your own with no outside help, you're prone to come to the, some conclusions that may actually not be based in Scripture as much as you think they are. So you need the church of Christ to come in and around you and help you think through how we apply explicit and implicit principles of Scripture onto various matters. Now, this brings us to Romans 14. You're like, John, all that was introduction? Yes, all that was introduction. Let's find Romans 14 if you haven't got it already. We should expect differences among believers on tertiary matters because they've always been there. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 are in the Bible because Christians were disagreeing on tertiary matters. And our goal, by the way, is never to eliminate the differences. And our goal is definitely not to eliminate those who differ. Our goal is to find a way to live peaceably and lovingly in community with each other for the glory of Christ. And interestingly, this is one of the most evangelistic things we can do. Briefly, when we live in community, loving, unified community together, despite having a diversity of opinions on a number of things, do you know what the world sees? Something they won't see anywhere else. Why? Because everyone's so stinking tribal nowadays, right? There's that tribe and that tribe and that silo with their people and that silo with their people. No, 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 the church is not that. We have some things that we're going to be tribal about. We must not ever open our hands on. A lot of things, though, we have an open hand on. And we, and we don't just have an open hand on. We choose to lovingly live with one another. And when we do that, the, the, the world sees something they don't see anywhere else. They see something compelling. They see something beautiful. They see something of Jesus Christ in us. So what do we do when our conscience is in conflict with someone else's conscience? Here we are, finally, to Romans 14. Paul tackles this issue head on. What do we do when our conscience conflicts with someone else's conscience? I don't want to reinvent the wheel here. I'm literally going to give you the 12 principles from Nicelli and Crowley's book that they, they draw out from this text. So I'm going to give you their 12 principles and just spend a very short time on each one. How do we disagree with other Christians on disputable matters? Number one, we should welcome those who disagree with us. Romans 14, 1 through 2. We should welcome those who disagree with us. Romans 14, 1 through 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat, may eat anything while the, the weak person eats only vegetables. We should welcome those who disagree with us. The more we understand what faith in Christ means, the freer we'll be from unnecessary regulations. The more we understand what the gospel is and what it demands from us, the more we'll understand what things we can disagree upon. We must understand that both the weak and the strong can please God 
and sin against God and how they, they, they handle themselves in these disputes. So a strong conscience can fail to welcome a weak conscience, and a weak conscience can fail to welcome a strong conscience. It goes both ways. Number two, I'm not going to spend too much time repeating all these principles. My notes will be on our website if you want to write them down later. Number two, those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. Those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. Verse 3, the first part of verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So those with a stronger conscience will be tempted to look down their nose on those with a stricter conscience, accusing them of being immature Christians or legalistic. But it must not be. Paul condemns this kind of pride, this kind of superiority. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Number three, those whose conscience restricts them must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. Last part of verse three, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So those whose conscience restricts them must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. It's tempting to accuse people who have a freer conscience of not caring about holiness. You know, they'll say, oh, well, you're just a worldly person. You just, your life looks more like the world and less like Christ. We start throwing around accusations like this. Paul gives two reasons why this is wrong. First, he says God has welcomed him into verse 3. For, don't do this, for God has welcomed him. If God allows His people to hold different opinions on various matters, then who are we to say that someone else has to have our opinion? That they have to agree with us. God has welcomed them, therefore you need to welcome them too. Secondly, in verse 4, Paul says, we aren't the master of other believers. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God is the only master in the universe. Everyone else is his servant. We're all his servants. Our job is to welcome. God's job is to lead. Now, this is not to say, let me do a brief excursus here. This is not to say that third-level issues are not important. First-level issues are things you have to believe to be a Christian. Second-level issues are things that you have to believe to be a member of a particular church, like believer's baptism. Third-level issues are things that Christians should agree to disagree upon. This doesn't mean that third-level issues are unimportant, that we should never talk about them. It's okay to talk about them. But when we do, we need to do so with the right spirit. A critical or condemning spirit is not Christ-like. It's often said that we should be strict with ourselves and gentle with others, especially when you disagree with them. We also need to have the right proportion. In other words, we need to make sure that third-level issues stay third-level issues. I thought theologian John Frame provided a great and helpful antidote on this point on Twitter this past week or a couple weeks ago. He says, quote, Don't lose your sense of humor. We should take God seriously, not ourselves, and certainly not theology. He says, to lose your sense of humor is to lose your sense of proportion, and nothing is more important in theology than a sense of proportion. In other words, as I said at the beginning, 
not everything is equally important. The deity of Christ is way more important than what you think about Harry Potter. What happens, unfortunately, is like you and I get so worked up and fired up about things that aren't really that important. And we don't even really know how to articulate, articulate the things that actually are important. There has to be a sense of proportion. You need to be able to weigh things out and understand which things are first level, second level, and disputable. There has to be a sense of proportion. These third level issues, by the way, shouldn't be the main reason you join this church or that church. You're like, well, that church is KJV only, so they must be godly. That's probably not a very fair way to reason as you think about what church to join. Just using that as an example. We shouldn't be constantly trying to win our friends over to our side on these issues and then looking down on them if they decide to not join us. We can talk about these issues without always feeling the need to argue, debate, and win people to our side. Subcultures shouldn't form around these issues in our churches. This is so important for new believers and those who are discipling new believers. And when new members come into the church, they shouldn't feel a pressure to embrace particular views on particular subjects. We should never give the impression that if you want to be a good Christian, you'll always do this. Or you'll think this. When this is a disputable matter, that is bad discipleship. Leaders in the church should never impose prohibitions or commands that are not clear in Scripture. Now, I have opinions about everything, just like you do. But my opinion is not the Word of God about any number of things. It's wrong for any leader to impose a prohibition or command that isn't clearly in Scripture. What a maturing Christian is able to do, a maturing Christian knows when to flex, you know, when to give a little bit in order to love a weaker brother or sister, and when not to flex in response to a Christian who is trying to bully their views onto you. Does that make sense? A mature Christian knows when to be flexible and when to say, hey, I think you're being unnecessarily rigid on this particular issue. It's a mark of maturity in Christ. The ability to, this is why it's maturity. The ability to do this well ensures that the gospel and only the gospel is what's passed on to the next generation. Not the gospel and all of our cultural baggage. We want to make sure that our kids and our community know and hear and understand the gospel, not the gospel as we have interpreted it with all of our cultural baggage. We want to make sure that people know and believe the things God has clearly outlined in Scripture and not confuse those things with our opinions. Now, back to Romans 14. Let's keep going down our list of 12 things, 12 principles for engaging Christians who disagree with us. Number four, number four, each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Verse 5. Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. On disputable matters, we must obey our conscience even while we constantly seek to align our conscience with God's will. Number five. Assume that others are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. Verses 6 through 9. 
This is so important. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord and Be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, give each other the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume their motives are bad. Just because they disagree with you about Santa Claus doesn't mean they're evil and not trying to obey and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear what Paul's saying here? Those who eat are trying to honor the Lord. Those who abstain are trying to honor the Lord. They're doing all that they're doing to try to honor the Lord. Give them that benefit of the doubt. We should assume the best of each other's motives. Oh, how thankful I am that this, as far as I can see, is the case in our church. Unity in a church flourishes when we give each other the benefit of the doubt instead of putting the worst possible spin on everyone's position. That's what the world does, right? You just have to watch cable news for like three seconds to see that. Just spin everything in the worst possible way and then say it as if it's true. It must not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. We assume the best of one another, even as we engage on these issues. Number six, do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. Do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. This is verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I love how Nacelli uh, and Crowley put this. They say, quote, On that day we'll be so busy answering questions for our own life that we don't need to spend our short life meddling in the lives of others. In these matters where good Christians disagree, we just need to mind our own conscience and let God be the judge of others. God will judge. We don't have to on these disputable matters. Seventh, your freedom to eat meat is correct. But don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weak brother. Your freedom to eat meat is correct, or fill in the blank, your freedom to whatever is correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weak brother. Verses 13 through 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it, thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, it's sin, this is serious, it's sin to bind someone's conscience where the Word of God doesn't. It's sin to bind a friend's conscience with rules that don't clearly come from God. Christians with a stronger conscience shouldn't use their freedom to embolden a weaker brother or sister to sin against their conscience. 
Remember, Jesus died for that weaker brother or sister. So we should be willing to die too, give up our freedom, if that would help them and their faith and keep them from sinning against their conscience, then we should also avoid or abstain. This is called the stumbling stumbling block principle. The stumbling block principle doesn't mean that we just refrain from anything that another believer may disagree with. That would mean that we don't do anything, really. And it doesn't mean that we should just refrain from things because someone has a physical or emotional susceptibility to something, though that could be helpful if you're in their presence. The point Paul is making is that we shouldn't put anything in front of someone that would be a stumbling block for their conscience. The point is that the weaker brother's faith won't allow them to do this or that. It's a theological weakness, not a physical or emotional weakness. Alcohol is a good example. Drinking alcohol in our context with someone who has a history of alcohol abuse is probably not a good idea. That's not the same as putting a stumbling block in front of their conscience. Drinking alcohol with someone who thinks that it's wrong to drink alcohol is putting a stumbling block in front of their conscience. Does that make sense? So especially in the South, the Bible Belt, it might be wise to ask, hey, is it okay for us to have a drink? Is it okay for us to drink? Like, don't ever assume that your conviction on alcohol is everyone's conviction on alcohol. Especially for those of us who grew up in the South and in Baptist churches. That's number seven, the stumbling block principle. Number eight, disagreements about eating and drinking are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. This is verses 16 through 21. 16 through 21. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul is saying that the strong should voluntarily abstain from anything that would cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. We could, of course, extend the list of things in verse 17 to any disputable matter. The kingdom of God, verse 17, he says, it's not a matter of eating or drinking, or, uh, but, a, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We could say the kingdom of God is not about political parties. Seriously. The kingdom of God is not about political parties or schooling choices or Santa Claus or when you Sabbath or whether you eat only organic. The kingdom of God is not about that stuff. The kingdom of God says plainly is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we must not confuse things that make up the kingdom of God that are disputable matters. Number nine. Number nine, if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. I hope you'll see some repetition in here. Paul is just at pains to make some very basic points. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself 
and God. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. This applies to the strong and the weak. The strong need to be wise in how they talk about their freedoms, especially as they're discipling their children and new believers. They must not assume that their convictions should be everyone's convictions. Then the weak need to guard against policing others and expecting them to adopt their standards. Those with a strict conscience could lead people into the serious error of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. If we insist that people hold our view on disputable matters in order to be a true Christian, we've crossed the line into legalism. If we start to, to, to sound like you must have this view on this matter to be a good Christian, then we are we are in danger of actually undermining and undercutting the power of the gospel in someone's life. We must not, here to summarize this point, we must not elevate things to the status of moral law that aren't indeed in God's law. We must not elevate things to the status of moral law that aren't indeed in God's law. For example, it's not, please hear me carefully, it's not inherently wrong to read Harry Potter. Talk about Santa Claus. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask. Vote for a Democrat. (laughs) Drink alcohol. Use birth control. Listen to Christian hip-hop. On and on. I'm serious. I'm not telling you what I think about these matters. What I'm saying is these are disputable matters. In and of themselves, you don't do one thing or or the other thing on these matters. You can't say that the person who's opposite from you is sinning. You can't do that. Because these are disputable matters. By definition, there's a dispute. (laughs) They're not part of the moral law of God. That doesn't mean that the law of God, the word of God, doesn't have something to say into these matters. It just means that we're going to come to some different conclusions about them. This is so serious. If we use these disputable matters as a test for faithfulness, then we're becoming like the Pharisees. I'm super passionate about this. We must not bind people's conscience where the Bible doesn't. Jesus yelled at these guys who did that. They elevated things that were not in God's law over things that actually were. Remember how Jesus says it in Matthew 23? You're straining gnats and swallowing camels. I talk about this in the newsletter article. This is why a generation ago... Churches would teach that drinking is wrong and dancing is wrong. And then they would instruct their deacons to stand at the door and not let black people in. Straining a gnat, swallowing a camel. May it not be so among us. May the gospel be the power of God here. May the gospel be what shapes us. May the word of God be what's shaping us and not our opinions on all of these disputable matters. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. Number 10. A person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. A person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Verse 22, the end there. Blessed. The word means happy. It's a word for joy. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
when we obey the warnings of our conscience, our joy in God is increased. Our conscience is God's way of guarding us from sin that will rob our joy. And God wants to increase our joy, not take it away. Number 11, we must follow the example of Christ. This gets into chapter 15. Let's read the first six verses. We must follow the example of Christ. We who are strong, 15.1, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 is really the key. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. To bear with doesn't mean that the strong have to agree with the position of the weak. To bear with doesn't mean that the strong don't have freedom. They can't exercise their freedoms. To bear with doesn't mean that they, they tolerate the weak, that they kind of um, pridefully just smile and nod when a weak brother or sister has a different opinion. To bear with means that the strong will gladly help the weak by refraining from anything that will hurt the fa- their faith. Do you do that? Are you careful not to hurt the faith of your brothers and sisters? Or do you just say what comes to mind and let the chips fall where they may? That's unloving. That's not the way of Christ. Christ did nothing wrong. Right? And He gladly went to the cross to take our wrongs, keeping His mouth shut, taking all of our sin and the wrath of God on Himself so that we might be set free, so that we might have a freedom to love one another, not have a freedom to yell at each other and argue with each other about everything. We must follow the example of Christ. We must follow the example of Christ. Our freedom in Christ does not mean I can do whatever I want. Here's what freedom means. It means I will do whatever brings the most glory to God and brings others to love the gospel and creates peace in the church. That's what you're free to do, Christian. You're free to glorify God, build up the church, and spread the gospel through your actions. In light of what He's done, we should be willing to give up anything for His sake and for the sake of those for whom He died. Number 12, and finally, we bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. This is 15.7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you notice what happened in this section? Verse 1, chapter 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Chapter 15, verse 7, therefore, welcome one another. This idea of unity, of welcoming one another, bookends this whole section on disputable matters. Why? Because the unity of the church is too important for it to be rent apart on these secondary, tertiary matters. Welcome one another. Lovingly embrace one another even when you disagree. And when you do, you'll reveal the way Christ has welcomed you and you'll give glory to God. Just think how Christ has, how has Christ welcomed you? Christ welcomed you, someone who in our sin 
we didn't agree with him on just about anything. <laughs> Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Christ welcomed you when you disagreed with God on almost every point. Welcome one another. Welcome one another. Welcome one another. The point is that there's a way to disagree in the church that brings glory to God. And there's a way to disagree in the church that steals glory from God and undermines the very gospel that we say we believe. Our consciences are precious gifts from God. Our consciences point us to our need for the conscience cleanser, Jesus Christ. Some of you may need to call out to Him today and have a clean conscience. Be relieved of lifelong guilt. And our consciences are given to increase our joy in God as we obey them. But like any gift, we're responsible to take care of them in a way that pleases God. So picture your, your conscience. Last thing, we're done. Picture your conscience as a beautiful garden that God made and gave to you at birth. A beautiful garden that God made and gave to you at birth. As you grew up in your culture and your family and your church, weeds came into this garden and some of the plants started dying. Over time, it ceased to bear good fruit. No garden, of course, can be neglected for very long before it ceases to bear fruit. So we must tend to this garden. We must water it with the Word of God. We must pull out the rules that don't belong and add the ones that do. We need help from other gardeners to know the difference. So here's your, here's your assignment as we close. Open the gates of your garden and say to Jesus, Lord, it's yours. Take what doesn't belong. Add what does. And help me to know the difference. Take what doesn't belong. Add what does. Help me to know the difference. And then watch the gardener, by his grace, start to create something beautiful and something that leads to joy and something that brings some great glory in your life and in your conscience. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would please guide us into all truth by your Spirit. I pray that our consciences would be clean. I pray that we would deal candidly and honestly with the things in our lives that are continually nagging us, things that we know we need to confess, things we have minimized, things we have gone out of our way to defend and defend and defend, and we simply just need to confess, to say what's true, and to receive the forgiveness and grace of Christ. I pray that you would cleanse our consciences, and I pray that you would instruct our consciences, help us to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. I pray that you would add the things that needed, need to be added and take away the things that need to be removed. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we think through really hundreds and thousands of things that just aren't crystal clear in your word. Give us wisdom, Father, and give us patience and grace and love for one another as we disagree. May we disagree in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ, in a way that reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may our church never be known for the church that cherishes this or that disputable matter. May our church be known for cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.